Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in neuronal science. In addition, we'll be joined by Tom Ross and Stephanie Glark, who will be talking about the play Therese Rakeen. Also joining us is Jimmy Lin, who will give us an update to the tech world. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Uh, not too bad, but I could be a bit better. I seem to have caught a little cold over the... Uh, oh, no, a cold. Yeah. Over the 4th? Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, just too chilly in the Berkeley Marina, I guess. Oh, it has nothing to do with the exploding influenza fireworks that they're using nowadays? Oh, oh, the anti-SARS or <laughs> The SARS anti-SARS or... bombs, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> something to do with that. Oh, well, that's too bad. I hope, uh, hope you get better there, as I'm sure all our listeners do. All right, so... Well, here's the question of the week for you. Not that question of the week. Again, that question of the week, premature. <laughs> it's all about being premature, right? It would seem. So, um, what do you do for bad breath? Bad breath? Uh, I guess I usually just don't talk to people. Oh, okay. You don't take chewing gum? Chewing gum? Yeah, sometimes I take chewing gum. Chewing gum? Well, uh, apparently there's a new patent that uh, Wrigley applied for uh, curing impotence. Curing with, impotence? With, with chewing gum. Okay. Uh, uh, so apparently, is, is it like the guy that's supposed to chew it or the girl? I believe the guys. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a compound, sildenafil citrate. Okay. The uh, the main ingredient in oh, Viagra. Oh, that Yeah. They have a technique for applying this or embedding this into your gums. So they can, chewing gums. Oh, so the chewing gum. Okay, so they can put in the chewing gum and you chew it. Uh huh. And it will release the uh, the Viagra. The, presumably. Yeah, yeah, the main ingredient. So up to the description, it's, uh, it's to be applied into their oral cavities. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would imagine that would be one cavity where it could be applied. <laughs> well, talk about doubling your pleasure, huh? Yeah, double your fun. Well, that, that certainly, <laughs> I guess, uh, prevents me, I think, from wanting to swallow my gum, aside from the gum tree growing out of my ch- stomach. But, well, of course. Yeah. So I guess if I want to do more, they can go to the, uh, the U.S. patent website, uspto.gov. Chew that double mint gum. All right, well, this has uh, much less to do, I think, with the uh, innumerable effects of uh, Viagra. But <laughs> no chewing here, huh? No chewing here, but I guess it does have something to do with, uh, I guess, the reproduction of uh, fish. The reproduction of fish. Yes, clownfish to be exact. Uh, oh, like Finding Nemo. Like Finding Nemo. I guess that's perhaps why this uh, result was released uh, so timely-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that uh, fish can uh, find their way back to uh, their coral reefs where they are born quite readily, it seems. Really, just like uh, salmon, right? Just like salmon. Well, I guess like salmon and, and like Nemo uh-huh. or whoever. <laughs> and uh, so it turns out that uh, it's kind of interesting because when they're born, they actually swim away from the reef, right. but then come back when they're older. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and the big question is, how do they do this? Isn't that due to pheromones or some uh, chemical markers that they leave behind? Yeah, you would think. You would think. And that's probably usually the, the first uh, first idea. But in fact, it turns out it has a lot more to do with sound. Sound? Sound. You mean they have a memory of the sound where they were? It, it pretty much seems that way. So what a group of researchers did at uh, the University of Kentucky, uh, led by um, Hong Yang and Stephen Simpson, what they did is they looked at uh, a bunch of uh, fish and they tried playing different sounds to them. And they found out that if they hit just the right, you know, frequencies and all this sort of thing during their embryonic stage, mm-hmm. the heart rate would, the heartbeat would increase, and various physiological measures would go up. Interesting. And so then later, when they played this to the fish uh, in some location, they played it over by a coral reef area or some region, right? Not a coral reef, and the this fish swam to the sound. Wow! Did they use a Britney Spears' latest soundtrack for that? <laughs> I think it had more to do like with that Justin De Kelly. Uh, I think they were playing the Justin De Kelly movie, whatever that thing oh. is. Lordy! Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, and so uh, there. It seems as if perhaps the clownfish use this as one cue to actually getting back to their coral reefs. Hmm. Interesting. If anyone wants to know about more about this, they can uh, check it out. It's in the recent edition of the Science. So I finally have something useful to talk about. Useful, okay. Yeah, I, I try to make my life. I thought useful. everything was useful. Uh, no, it's just pleasurable, I guess. <laughs> you can't, you can't really top the, uh, you know, the Wrigley Spearmint uh, Viagra gum. <laughs> but this is actually another material. Ooh. It's what zeolites? Have you heard of them? Zeolites. Uh, they're they're sort of tiny uh, rock uh, particle type. Right, of? basically they're silica or right. sand with uh, well-defined pores on the right. order of say a ten to a hundred nanometers. So that's about say ten thousandth or one thousand one hundred thousandth the width of a human hair. Okay. And these things are all regular? Yeah, they have regular structures. Mm. Okay. And uh, you can implant you know, metal ions into them ah. and give them really exotic properties. So a group of researchers have um, developed a kind of zeolite using, uh, using copper and silver ions embedded in them. And it turns out it's a very good way to absorb sulfur, uh, sulfur contaminants in, uh, in uh, fossil fuel. Oh, okay. So it's sort of a way of uh, cleaning up, scrubbing up uh, fossil fuels. Right. So adding... this thing turns out to be a super absorbent for um, sulfur-containing compounds. Oh, okay. And these sulfur-containing compounds are really bad for the environment and this kind of stuff. Yeah. So one problem we have with the uh, the jet fuel is it produces sulfur oxide, uh, sulfurous oxide, and those actually become part of your acid rain. Oh, right. It combines with the, the water. Sulfuric acid in this. Hmm. Okay. So uh, the uh, in this one study they did was they took commercial diesel fuel, which uh, typically has about 400 parts per million of uh, sulfur, and then they um, they pass it through a uh, sample of this zeolite, and the uh, resulting uh, mixture only had 0.02 parts per million. Oh, so much less than what they put in. It's about four orders of magnitude. Four orders of magnitude? More than four orders of magnitude. Wow. 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 like nothing. I'm amazed. Yes. And I'm the... frankly flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about this material is that you can regenerate it. Um, you pass it through some other solvent, like uh, dimethylformamide oh, okay. or... So it's renewable. It's renewable. Oh, great. And they can reuse it over and over. Well, geez. So we may actually have a solution for cleaning those jet fuels one of these days. I, I feel glad because, you know, every time I get up on that jet plane, I'm always worried about, you know, jet fuel spewage and... and <laughs> All the pollution you're <laughs> contributing to the environment. That's right. Now. And that's why, that's why I don't use the bathrooms when I'm on the plane. So the study was carried out by uh, Frances Yang and, and her group, and it's uh, in recent issue of Science. And now for a very impactful story. Wow, even more useful than the uh, sulfur-absorbing zeolites? <laughs> there are very few things that could be more useful than the sulfur-absorbing zeolites, but how about a uh, plastic guard for your license plate? A plastic guard for my license plate? Yes, indeed. 
What is it going to help? It's the reason we would need this is so that we can figure out how many bugs there are in London. How many bugs? Yes. What kind of bugs are you talking about? Just insects, gnats, uh, you know, all kinds of little pests like flies, aphids, etc. Uh-huh. Why would we want to do this, you might ask? You might ask right now. Why do you want to do this? I'm glad you asked. In fact, the reason why we'd want to do this <laughs> is that uh, there's sort of a declining uh, population of birds in the U.K., uh-huh. And uh, a lot of people have postulated that perhaps this is like due to a decline in the population of insects. I see, but if these uh, plastic guards are going to suck away the insects, how are <laughs> the birds going to get them? Well, I guess they're, they're actually just trying to use this as a measure to try and figure out how many insects there are. Oh, okay. So what okay. they're trying to do is they're trying to pass these out to motorists, uh-huh. give them these plastic uh, things, uh-huh. drive around for, they say, about 80 kilometers, and afterwards take the plastic thing off, put another piece of plastic, and send it in for analysis. Oh, I see. And then they can get a count, a rough right. count, for how many... Right. Uh, bugs there are, right? And then they can have a baseline and they measure this over time. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of a, a broad sort of uh, uh, experiment to try and figure out how many insects there are and what's going on with population. Cool. And yeah. And if you want, you can add some sulfur-absorbing zeolites to that. It'd be <laughs> cool as well. Uh, but if you want to find out more about this, they can check the recent edition of Science. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll be talking to Tom Ross and Stephanie Gullark about Teresa King. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, before Freud started psychoanalysis and psychology became a science, there's an era called naturalism in the late 19th century. During this time, Zola wrote a play called Therese Rakin, which may have been the first look at the human psyche from a rational and scientific point of view. Well, joining us today is Tom Jones and Stephanie Gullark, who will tell us a little bit about this play. Tom Ross is producing director of the Aurora Theater as well as the director for this play. 
Uh, Mr. Ross, thanks for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. So first of all, could you tell us the premise behind uh, Therese Rakin? Therese Rakin was a, is a novel uh-huh. that was written by Emil Zola in 1867, and it was a, a very scandalous, uh, popular novel at the time. It, he based it on a newspaper article that was um, you know, something that had actually happened, a crime that had actually occurred. And Zola, uh, at that time, was interested in naturalism, and uh, he, in fact, he's the father of naturalism. So what was going on in France, uh, Paris at that time, where, as far as literature was concerned, were f- sort of boulevard comedies or fluffy farces or, or very melodramatic plays that, that he thought were s- schematic and didn't have a lot to do with real life or real people. And his mission was to try to put reality into novels and then eventually theater. And so he wrote Therese Rakan, which was his second novel, but his first major novel. And it actually was a serial in newspapers. It would come out every week. So e- each chapter, like like Indiana Jones or something, each each chapter sort of had a cliffhanger ending that would make people want to go on and read the next the next chapter. He wrote this novel, and, and it was uh, because of the, the frank sexuality of it, particularly with the, the heroine, who is not mm-hmm. like anyone who people had been writing about before a, a sexually aggressive woman and the crime that they committed it, it became a scandal and then seven years later he always wanted to write plays and he, he adapted this novel into a play which was uh, was probably the only successful play that he actually ever did it's, mm-hmm. it's still done to this day most of his other plays died at the box office or he had other people adapt his novels into plays but Therese Rakan uh, was actually the very first naturalistic play ever put on stage it preceded Ibsen and it preceded Strindberg, so it's a very, very important play in the history of theater for that reason. And Stephanie Gullark, who plays the title role of Therese Rakin, is also here. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Uh, perhaps you could also give us your perspectives on Therese Rakin. Well, Zola was really kind of, uh, it took a, took a young woman and wanted to examine what happens psychologically when uh, a person is, is placed in a setting that it really it grows up in, a, in an environment that uh, denies her of uh, regular emotional, psychological, sexual development. It's really kind of a study in, in what happens when you place a person in a certain certain situation. He's placed his character in this very confining situation and then has added uh, a, another character to kind of disrupt this world that she has she has, has grown up in. And, and then has us all kind of, as the audience, stand back and look, okay, now what, what will happen to a person when you do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like a little, uh, you know, put, putting the mouse in the, in the maze and, and, and watching where they go. And that's what he was really interested in, is looking at it from, from the psychological perspective. And it was really kind of a, you know, early, a, you know, pre-Freudian look at, at ego and passion and, and how people are motivated to behave in the way that they do. Very interesting. Uh, Tom, could you tell us a little bit more about Zola himself? I think what, what Zola set out to do and what he accomplished are two different things. What he wanted to do was he, what was just happening in, in the world in the 1860s there was was the importance of science. Uh-huh. And this is, of course, pre-Freud, but, um, but Darwin was around, so the whole concept of survival of the fittest was a concept that was just trying to take hold. Also, heredity and also your economic and social environment had a lot to, to do with, with what you would become. So he, was a, he wanted to uh, explore people as a scientist would. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to, um, it wasn't really so much psychology with him, 
although ultimately you have to get into that, but he was trying to be a scientist, and he was trying to take two different people, a man and a woman of two different temperaments and socioeconomic backgrounds, and his idea was to throw them into a room and watch what happened just neutrally as a scientist would. So that was what his, his, his goal was. But what he actually did was, because he does come out of a world of melodrama, and he does come out of a world of farce, uh, and he was, it was the first attempt at being real. There's sort of a schizophrenic quality to the piece, both the novel and the play that I like a lot. Uh-huh. So it veers back and forth from sort of a real psychological realism into, you know, uh, big stretches of melodramatic action. So I think what he, what he set out to do is, what he ended up doing is not what he set out to do. It took him several more years and novels of honing his craft mm-hmm. before he was really actually able to, to, to be the, the scientist that he wanted to be. Uh, are, are there any contemporary novels or stories which are comparable to these themes here? I think this story has been done in, in various forms and time again. I would say a favorite uh, a comparison, this is actually not a novel, a film that just comes to my mind immediately is, uh, is Body Heat to give it an extremely contemporary uh, <laughs> correlation. Uh-huh. Um, it's very film noir. You know, the whole idea of the femme fatale, you know, it, it, it's definitely got those elements uh, of classic noir. And you, Tom? Well, I, you know, what, what, what the story is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's I think, the beginning of, uh, of, of Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a crime story. So it's, it's looking at two people that, that do a murder, um, but not really judging them exactly, although they both, they both die at the end. Um, but he wasn't really judging them or saying, oh, she did this because she couldn't get a divorce. He was just watching the workings of two people um, who are who do a crime and then are consumed by guilt and watching that guilt eat away at them. And, you know, I think it's totally contemporary when you look at um, the, 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 the Lacey Peterson case right now where you watch this mm-hmm. husband, Scott Peterson, where all, we all watch him on the news and we watch him being marched out in his little orange uniform on the television. We're all wondering, well, what's going on in this guy's head? And I think that that's one of the, the interesting things about this play is you get to sort of watch killers at home <laughs> who are lying constantly. We in the audience know that they're lying, that the people that they're surrounded by have no idea what's going on. But we're, as voyeurs, we're, we're able to go inside their minds and sort of watch them behind closed doors. So I think that there's a fascination for people because of that. That's right, there are, there are simultaneous worlds going on at the same time. And uh-huh. it's just uh, what, whatever your information is or whatever you know is what you see. If you don't have that information, it might be happening around you, but you just don't perceive it. Uh-huh. Uh, Therese says that in the play, what, what you don't know doesn't exist. Wow, this sort of blends in well with a lot of the science fiction that's been going on as yeah, well. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, the questions about reality and that's right. perceptions of it. Sure. Great. Uh, I guess we're running out of time here. Is there any last comments you'd like to add about the play or about the Aurora Theater? Um, well, we, we hope that your audience will come to the Aurora Theater. This is our second season at our brand new theater on Addison Street. Uh-huh. And it's a 150-seat theater, and it's a deep thrust. And the experience that you get at our theater is, is um, it's different than what you would get at Berkeley Rep or other theaters because it's so very, very intimate. You're, you're, the farthest row away is four rows, so you're really close to really great actors. Um, it's the same professional. We're, we're a union house. We're, these are professional actors. Um, the same actors you'd see at Berkeley Rep or ACT, mm-hmm. and you get the great privilege of being just literally feet away from them and watching them do their craft and being like a fly on the wall. And so uh, I think it's a real exciting place to be, and uh, we hope that your audience will come and check us out. Great. Thanks a lot for joining us. All right. Thank you, Frank.
And Stephanie, any last words? Just, I'd like to point out that uh, the the era that this was written in, mm-hmm. um, to have had a female character uh, with such dimension and depth and psychological specificity uh, created is is really a, an incredible thing. And, you know, we see it in, in Shakespeare's work, but not in a lot of places in, in, in period pieces. And really to the, to the credit of the Aurora Theatre Company that they brought this piece out as a really, not just a, an interesting historical look at what was considered naturalism at that time, but to cre- bring out a piece from the 19th century that has a strong female character. This says a lot about femininity and, and female sexuality uh, during that time. And right. I think it's, uh, it's an interesting study. Stephanie, Tom, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. We were just talking to Tom Jones and Stephanie Glark on Therese Rakeen, which is playing at the Aurora Theater until July 27th. This is Berkeley Rocks on 90.7 FM that you're listening to. Coming up, Jimmy Lin will give us the tech update. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, joining this week again is Jimmy Lin, our tech correspondent. Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Frank. Uh, this week I thought I'd talk about something called the Defacers Challenge. So this challenge was a contest a bunch of hackers decided to sponsor, mm-hmm. and the contest was to see who could uh, break in and deface 6,000 web servers in the shortest amount of time. And the defacements were supposed to take place on Sunday. Uh-huh. Uh, last Sunday, July 6th. Right. And there was a lot of um, 
attention focused on this contest, especially after a security company called Internet Security Systems uh, publicized it last week. Uh-huh. So this was supposed to happen essentially over the 4th of July weekend. So uh, CNETnews.com reports that the challenge didn't quite go as planned. So anyone on the web on Sunday probably didn't notice anything. <laughs> like most major websites were all up and running. Due to pressure from the government or? Well, probably not. I mean, you know, it's never, it's never good for your website to be taken down for yeah. any reason. Uh-huh. And so security was probably already decent anyway. What was supposed to happen was the people defacing the websites were supposed to submit their defacements to a third-party website called zoneh.org, and it is the largest archive of website defacements. <laughs> the, the hackers were supposed to um, submit their defacements to this website, and then from there they could judge you know, who would win the contest. Well, they expected twenty to 30,000 defacements. Mm-hmm. But apparently by the end of Sunday, only about 500 defacements were submitted. Oh. Um, and it turns out that actually Zone H itself was attacked uh-huh. and was down for much of Sunday. That was probably the most successful attack website that you're supposed to submit your defacements to in the first place. Um, typically, the um, uh, in an interview with News.com, the, the Zone H uh, founder and editor said that he typically sees 1,000 to 3,000 defacements on any normal Sunday. Oh, I see. So, so apparently not much of anything happened. <laughs> um, but it shows that at least it looks like most website administrators are taking basic security measures. And basically anyone, um, one um, security consultant said that, you know, if you do what you're supposed to do, then nothing should have happened to your website, mm-hmm. basically. There was nothing really special about these attacks. Okay, so it just demonstrates that we're probably in a safe position or... That at least for this type of basic defacement attacks, we're probably okay. There's still vulnerabilities in you know the internet and our IT infrastructure, but it looks like this isn't the most serious of them. Okay, well thanks a lot for the story, Jimmy. Okay, thank you. All right, and now it's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ah, uh, thank you, Chucky. And the question was, what is the density of the universe? Well, it's easy to say one universal density, but more precisely, it's uh, three times ten to the negative thirty grams per cubic centimeter of mass, and that is the density of the universe. And now here's Dr. Lecter with this week's question of the week. Ah, very good. Now run along and play now, Tokyo Kid. <laughs> and now it's time for this week's question of the week. What is the hottest organ in your body? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might know what goes well with fava beans and Chianti. <laughs> And that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Mm-hmm.